Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This podcast is part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club, a program designed to help all podcasts reach their full potential. For information about joining the Robots Radio Rocket Club, check out robotsradio.net. Welcome back to another episode of Two Girls, One Ship, the podcast where we analyze, rate, and review all that the world of video game romances has to offer. I'm Genesis, the girl who has hit end credits on Tears of the Kingdom and really wishes that there was more romance in Zelda games so I could add them to the list. But I will just have to live in the unsaid words and knowing glances until the eventual heat death of Hyrule. And I'm Vivada, the girl who wants romance in every game ever, and I haven't played Tears of the Kingdom, so I need to get on that, but I'm too busy being obsessed with the games we're talking about today. No, I get it, but I have like over 100 hours into Tears of the Kingdom, so definitely well worth a playthrough. Yeah, even my kid's teacher is like, I don't sleep anymore. Just Tears of the Kingdom. (laughs) It's so good. So good. But we have a lot to talk about tonight. So if you're new here, welcome to the beautiful chaos. But you should know that our podcast centers on character and romance analysis and doesn't shy away from exploring the fun of fucking. Or from the deep emotional connections built between two characters using specific in-game dialogue. So if you want to stay spoiler-free, this is not the podcast for you, and especially not the episode. This episode in particular is very spoiler-heavy. So here's your fucking spoiler alert. Thanks for the spoiler alert, N7. And just like with all of our previous episodes, we'll assume that you have some background knowledge of the game and characters in question, but we will be providing context for those of you who may be unfamiliar. Today is a day I have been waiting for. We are talking about a game series that is literally one of my most favorite games of all time. But this world is incredibly dark. We will be discussing some very violent actions and themes, and there will be mentions of self-harm at one point. We will let you know when that part comes up. Today, we are discussing three characters and two romances Ellie and Riley from The Last of Us Left Behind DLC, and Ellie and Dina from The Last of Us Part 2. Hey, so... I said I like an asshole, but 
I totally meant it. You should go. I mean, this is something that you've wanted for, you know, forever, so. Who am I to stop you? The one person that can. No, please don't go. I'll be so miserable without you. I'll be fine. And you'll be fine. And we'll see each other again. Before we jump right into the romances, we need to iron out some context. Maybe some of you haven't played the games in a while, or haven't played them at all. Either way, in order to do these relationships justice, we need to provide some background. The Last of Us Part 1 first introduces us to the post-cordyceps world, where humans can be infected by the fungus and essentially become zombies, although they are referred to as the infected. The first game lets us play as Joel, a weathered and bitter man who is charged with taking Ellie a 14-year-old girl from Boston to Salt Lake City in search of the Fireflies. The Fireflies are a revolutionary militia pseudo-terrorist group whose core mission is to restore society and create a vaccine for the cordyceps infection. FEDRA, F-E-D-R-A, is the paramilitary group that represents the last bastions of the U.S. government and is basically a dictatorship regime in the quarantine zones established around the country. Joel is a smuggler, and he has to smuggle Ellie. Ellie is immune to cordyceps, and the Fireflies believe that they can make a vaccine with her help. We'll get to what that would mean for Ellie a little bit later. Ellie grew up in the Boston quarantine zone, and that is where our first romance takes place, though it's a bit of a stretch to call this a romance. The Left Behind DLC occurs as a flashback during the main story of The Last of Us Part 1, as it occurred roughly three weeks before the start of the game, and it shows the story of how exactly Ellie knows she is immune. Ellie was in Fedra school, a military school that churned out kids who knew how to take orders and survive in a world that tried to kill them constantly. Ellie has never been good at listening, and her best friend Riley is also a troublemaker. Riley has been gone a while, she ran away, and Ellie doesn't expect to see her again. Until one night when she is rudely awakened by Riley pretending to bite her and making Ellie think an infected is suddenly in her room. Not cool, Riley. Not cool. Are we cool? Are we cool? I disappeared and you're mad. And I owe you an explanation. Let's get out of here and I'll tell you all about it. It's almost morning and I have military drills. You know, where we learn how to kill fireflies. Put some pants on and let's go. Dumb. Come on. When have we ever gotten into trouble? This is the first glimpse we get of Riley and Ellie's dynamic. And while we don't really get to see them before this, we know from conversations with them that they have been friends for a while. Riley actually first met Ellie by stepping in to help when some other kids were bullying her and trying to steal her Walkman. But Riley ended up stealing it for herself. 
Ellie ended up confronting her, and the two have been inseparable ever since. At least they were, until Riley just left and joined the Fireflies. This would understandably make Ellie feel unimportant and upset with her friend. But they're more than friends, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yes. Ellie may be 14, and Riley is supposed to be 16 here, but they have been flirty friends that are more than friends for a while. So it's more upsetting to Ellie that Riley randomly just left her and let Ellie think she was dead for a month and a half. Turns out, Riley went and joined the Fireflies, and for whatever reason, she decided to come visit Ellie on this night. The way Riley talks to Ellie in this first cutscene is very dismissive of her feelings, almost like Ellie is a sidekick. It just seems like she expects Ellie to be totally unfazed by her absence and sudden reappearance, and also just knows that Ellie will follow her when told. Or, perhaps it's an unwillingness to be vulnerable, to tell the truth. This is a recurring theme in this game, because being vulnerable means you leave yourself open to hurt, even to death. Was that... Yes. <laughs> I know. Maya. Go away, Kitty. Come back later. So Riley leads Ellie to an old crumbling mall, a great place for any two teenagers to run amok late at night. These two teenagers both have a special fascination with the past, with the world that existed before it was corrupted by the cordyceps and left to rot. Ellie and Riley switch on the lights, and their faces are alight with wonder and the soft glow of old neon. Their imaginations run wild over what Halloween must have been like, what video games might have felt like to play. They throw bricks at car windows and make a competition out of it. You know, just doing normal kid stuff. Ellie wins, and Riley says she can ask her one question. She'll answer it truthfully. Alright, question time. I'm scared. Um... Okay. Why did you leave without telling me? I was in a weird space. Look, I didn't tell anyone. But I wasn't just anyone, was I? No, it's just... You gotta see this thing, and we're almost there. Come on. You didn't answer my question. The way Ellie says that at the end makes me so sad. Classic Riley, deflecting and distracting. We've heard two clips of her, and we already know that this is her modus operandi. It's really interesting how Ellie acts around Riley versus how Ellie acts in the main game, the Ellie that we are most familiar with. She changed a lot in just three weeks. Because remember, this DLC is about three weeks before Joel and Ellie first meet and the game begins. Ellie whispers that Riley didn't answer the question because she knows what Riley's up to, that she isn't being honest. But she also isn't up for calling Riley out on it. Their dynamic is one where Ellie is enamored with Riley, where Riley is simultaneously older and allegedly more responsible, yet is impulsive and thoughtless. Riley had no qualms with randomly leaving Fedra school and signing up with the Fireflies. Impulsive. And she clearly either didn't think about or didn't realize how affected Ellie would be by this choice. Thoughtless. 
Ellie is willing to forgive Riley, though, because at the end of the day, the thing that she fears most is being alone. She tells Sam that being alone is her worst fear. If you don't remember who Sam is, replay the game. Or watch the show. But be ready to cry. In a world where anyone can die a brutal death at any moment, safety is never guaranteed. And the scariest enemy is a stranger. Of course, being alone is a rational fear. For Ellie, it is pronounced. She is a child born six years after the initial outbreak. Her parents are dead, and the only person we know she has had any kind of close relationship to in her life at all, up to this point, is Riley. She's willing to overlook a lot just to have Riley in her life. But she does keep asking Riley why she brought her to the mall. And eventually, Riley offers a shard of truth. You hear that? Hey, you know what? We should head back. I need to head back. You got plenty of time. Riley, I don't have any more strikes left at this place. Tomorrow we'll just pick up where we left off. I can't. Well, we'll just do it another day then. <laughs> okay, Firefly Girl, when? They've asked me to leave. Leave what? Boston. I'm supposed to join a group in another city. I argued with them to stay here. You know how Marlene is. Nothing's easy with her. Everything's a test. They're picking me up tomorrow. Okay. That's it? Well, what do you want me to say? I don't know. How about some friendly advice? <laughs> I'm serious. Why did you bring me here? I wanted to see you. No, why did you bring me here? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <sighs> you want my advice? Go. Come on, let's just say our goodbyes. I'm gonna go check out this music. Riley! Riley! Riley is hoping that Ellie can read her mind, but she doesn't even know what her own mind is saying. In a very teenager way, Riley is hinting at what she wants without just coming out and saying it. After she runs off to where the music is coming from, Ellie corners her again, and Riley admits that Ellie is the only person who can make her stay. Ellie says, don't feel guilty for leaving. If you want an out, here's an out. I said it like an asshole before, but seriously, go. It's what you wanted. Riley replies that it wasn't guilt that made her cross a city full of soldiers to spend one last night with Ellie. And promptly reveals some water guns. <laughs> the way she reveals them, by throwing her backpack down on the floor and saying she nearly got shot for them, makes me wonder if Riley's trying to guilt trip Ellie into forgiving her. Before Riley left, she basically just told Ellie to fuck off, and she disappeared for 46 days. 
It seems like Riley wants to skip over forgiveness and healing and just pretend everything is normal again for one night, which honestly is a very 16-year-old thing to do. Yeah, I came in, I said I'm sorry, so let's go back to before I fucked up. And Ellie kind of accepts it for now. And the two have a fun water gun fight. It's followed by some table dancing, and obviously I can get behind this. <laughs> and the song that they dance to is Etta James's rendition of I Got You, Babe. And they share a kiss. And it's cute. This is also two young teens, so let's just keep it moving. Yeah. In this world, you can never really let your guard down. The music draws runners, or infected, and the two go from just stepping into some exploration of their sexuality and relationship together into running for their lives. The DLC sends you back to the present day, at this point where Ellie is trying to get medical supplies for Joel after he was impaled by falling onto some rebar, fighting followers of David, the pedophile religious nutcase that deserved exactly the death that he got. And Ellie, the girl who broke his fucking finger, has to fend off survivors of David's cult and infected to get the medical supplies. It's a whole thing that highlights just how capable this 14-year-old girl is having to be because of this world. Once she gets the medical supplies, it cuts back to the past, where Riley and Ellie are sprinting through the mall, tearing through the back rooms, desperate for escape from the many infected close behind them. They are nearly out of the mall and into the sunshine when the scaffolding they were climbing out of breaks, sending Ellie crashing to the ground. The two girls fight off the infected, and the last scene of this DLC starts as Ellie rips open the throat of the last runner. The silence deafening. For those of you who need to skip ahead, this is the scene with the mention of self-harm. The clip is two minutes and 30 seconds long. I think it's clear. Ellie. Ellie, your arm. No, 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 no. Some more stuff over there you can break. What are we gonna do? The way I see it, we got two options. Option one, you take the easy way out. It's quick and painless. I'm not a fan of option one. Two, we fight. Fight for what? We're gonna turn into one of those things. There are a million ways we should have died before today. And a million ways we can die before tomorrow. But we fight for every second we get to spend with each other. Whether it's two minutes or two days, 
We don't give that up. I don't want to give that up. My vote? Let's just wait it out. You know, we can be all poetic and just lose our minds together. Option three. Sorry. Come on. Let's get out of here. For me, the soundtrack of Mass Effect is the piano. Anytime we start hearing that, we know that it's going to be an emotional scene. This, anytime that the guitar starts playing, you know to turn on the emotion. Because something's about to hit you. As for an overall review of this, it feels like it's a first love. And it's really sweet. I know that in this reality, kids have to grow up fast. But I don't know how to feel about watching a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old having romantic feelings. I like my romance options to be of legal age. That's fair. I think they did a good job showing Ellie's sexuality without exploiting it in this. And it also serves as a really important reminder of just how much trauma she's already gone through in her life. Because while we don't know exactly how Riley dies. We know she does at some point, or she's wandering around Boston as an infected now. But a lot of people infer that Ellie ended up killing her when she found out she wasn't going to become infected too. And that's extremely traumatic. Like, (laughs) I can assume, I mean, yeah, it's, it's weird as a player who is an adult woman, like, or an adult period, playing and seeing, you know, these two girls kissing because they are children, even if they're teenagers. But at the same time, it is realistic. Like at those ages, I think most people, I was a late bloomer, but I think most people have their first kiss somewhere in there. And I'm glad that it was just that. It was, it was very innocent and sweet. No, completely. And I agree with you on that point too. And I also... I think that the fact that I am not a teenager, totally blind, like I have a different filter. I view things through a different lens. But if I'm, you know, the 16 year old kid who's picking up this video game, then seeing somebody in my age group going through this, I could see how that would be beneficial. It just it feels different at 37 watching somebody who's 14 you know yeah and gosh it it sure is sometimes easy to forget how young ellie is in this first game because she is so capable especially in this section of the game when joel is very injured and she is just a one man or one girl army you know yeah and it's great it's just i i love these games for many reasons but One of the things that makes me really sad is seeing the loss of innocence with the children in the game. Thinking about the extremes that humanity has to go through 
in this world to bring out these traits in full force and to make these kids adapt in this way is just sad. Let's go into our mid-break where we can talk about some fun facts, listen to sponsors of the show, and thank our patrons. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. So let's take our mid break dance. And there now exists a video of me doing the jack table dance. I got a little tequila drunk at karaoke and cleared off a table and danced. Yeah. For your birthday, Leslie? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can't wait to be there next year. <laughs> Yay! Yes, yes, yes. Now, fun facts about the game. The voice actor for Riley is Yanni King, who is also an actor on screen as well as in the recording booth. She was in Mad Men, Horizon Forbidden West, and a ton of other stuff. In the show, Riley is played by Storm Reed, who has been in A Wrinkle in Time, Euphoria, and Missing, among other things. And Ellie and Riley's romance is canon. It was in the games and in the show. So anyone who says otherwise is either blind or homophobic. Mm-hmm. Willfully ignorant. <laughs> I literally could not when the show came out and everyone was like, Bill and Frank weren't gay in the game. You guys were not paying attention. <laughs> um. Anyway, some fun facts about our next character, Dina, is that she is of Israeli heritage and is Jewish. She gives Ellie a Hamsa bracelet in the game, and Ellie can be seen wearing that bracelet in-game. Dina also can be seen wearing it, too. The Hamsa is the name for the symbol of an eye embedded in the palm of a hand, and it symbolizes many things as it is an ancient symbol important to many cultures and traditions. But in a Jewish Kabbalistic way, it's usually a symbol for protection and closeness to God. So I like to think that Dina giving this to Ellie was her way of protecting her. It's very cute. That's cute. And we do have a new review to read out this week from StanMC42 via Apple Podcast here in the U.S. Left on June 6th. Five stars. I ship it. 
a very fun investigation of romances in video games with two hosts that feel like great friends. Aww. Love me some Bioware and other story-heavy games. And this scratches my itch for a feminist breakdown of the implications of those romances. Keep up the good work. Stan, we stan you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you so much. It's amazing. Now, the Spotify comments are rolling in, and I appreciate them so much. I go through and I publish at least twice a week. So everything that has been posted, I believe our most recent comment was on the 11th about, oh, about Caden. Uh, Caden's brochure romance was the most recent comment left. So, yay. Thank you. We also have 128 ratings on Spotify. I would love to get us up to 150. Let's go. And of course, we thank the patrons, Toasty and Apollo, Becky and Bat Knight, Cloudy and Wynn, Miss Theos and the Cups, Lizzie and Muffiny Cake. Big hearts, major loves, all the thanks. Thank you so much. It really does help these two girls out to be a patron. And it's fun to talk to you guys every month. So, worth it. All right. It's time. It's finally time to talk about the game that made the biggest emotional impact on me. The game that has literally most affected me. The game that broke my heart and also rebuilt it. I literally couldn't do anything for two weeks after I finished this game. I was so affected. It's time to talk about The Last of Us Part 2 and of Dina and Ellie's relationship. Okay, I have a very serious question for you. How bad do I smell? Like a hot pile of garbage. Oh, okay. Oh, how about that? Gross. <laughs> you love it. Every guy in this room is staring at you right now. Maybe they're staring at you. Or not. Maybe they're jealous of you. I'm just a girl. Not a threat. should be terrified of you so many implications in that okay the end of part one shows that joel and ellie did find the fireflies but it turned out that ellie would have to die for the doctors in salt lake city to make a vaccine in the real world the cordyceps fungus does not enter the brain but rather infects and drives the body leaves the brain untouched. Now, this only happens in insects or arachnids. In this game, the fungus does seem to enter the brain. Ellie's brain is encased in it, which is where the doctors would have had to take the tissue in order to create a vaccine. If you have played the first game, you know what choice Joel made. 
Joel chose Ellie over potentially saving humanity, and he slaughtered every firefly in that hospital. This choice is highly contentious, with people defending Joel or condemning him. Either way, the choice was made for you and for Ellie. Five years have passed between then and the start of the second game, and they have made a peaceful life in Jackson, Wyoming. Mm-hmm. It's actually a pretty good life for this world. Dina and Ellie have been flirting for a while, it seems. And right after the audio we played just a minute ago, they shared their first kiss. Publicly, too. They were dancing in the community center of Jackson. The kiss was adorable, but the romantic scene was ruined when some old asshole bigot tells them off for being a loudmouthed, insert lesbian slur here, and Ellie gets in his face. Joel gets in his face, too, which is where we as players see their first hints of disharmony. Ellie is furious with him for stepping in, but this clip actually does not occur chronologically in the game. You don't see it till closer to the end of the game. So you're not quite sure what happened between Ellie and Joel when you first start this game. Why they're not so close anymore. The lesbian slur is the one that starts with the D. Just so you guys know which one we're talking about. Fun fun. Now, the next morning, Dina and Ellie awkwardly discuss their kiss. And Ellie tries to play it off as if it meant nothing. And Dina was just drunk. Dina clearly doesn't think it was nothing. It might seem like a role reversal here, that Dina is to Ellie what a young 14-year-old Ellie was once to Riley. But in fact, Ellie seems shocked that Dina would actually like her. Dina is bi, that's true, as she just got out of a relationship with Jesse, a young man also living in Jackson. Like, literally a week ago they broke up. But Dina has clearly held a candle for Ellie this whole time. Later that day, they find themselves on patrol together, and a blizzard comes out of nowhere. They are forced to shelter in an old building that just so happens to be where someone was growing weed. Nice. Can I ask you a question? I don't know, can you? Scale of one to ten. One being, like, absolute trash. And ten being... life-altering. How would you rate our kiss from last night? Why are we still talking about this? You said it was a mistake. Did I say that? What are you doing? I asked you to rate our kiss. I don't know. I give it a six. A six? Wow. Like a solid six. Okay. There are a lot of people around. Yeah, but six. Oh, what? I mean, now I really want to know how you'd rate it. I don't think you do. You're infuriating. Have you met you? 
you make me want to go back outside into that blizzard. Don't want to stopping you. This better be better than a snicks. Okay. Okay, Last of Us. I see you. I see the passion and the lust here. It's a good makeout scene with a little bit of roughhouse toss onto the couch. But that's about it. It fades to black, fully clothed, and after just a few seconds of kissing. But I will say, I love me a good roasting couple. Those two are the ones that will throw playful barbs at each other all day. Love it. So weird. I didn't know you liked that. <laughs> Being sarcastic, basically. I will say they're not fully clothed because the scene wraps up with them rapidly putting their pants back on because Jesse barges in. <laughs> so they do get slightly undressed, enough for some things to happen. <sighs> but not everything is all kisses and pot, though. At some point in these five years between the first and second game, Ellie discovered that Joel lied to her about the vaccine. Joel and Ellie haven't spoken in two years, and any interaction they have leaves Ellie prickly and pissed off. The beginning of the game is relatively calm, with Ellie and Dina slowly starting their relationship. But then the big awful happens. Remember that firefly doctor, Jerry Anderson? The one that Joel killed in the first game? Yeah, he had a daughter, Abby, and she spent the last five years fueled by vengeance and CrossFit. Like a lot of CrossFit. She has tracked Joel down, and during a blizzard after being saved from a horde affected by Joel and Tommy, she brutally murders him. Right in front of Ellie. It's one of the worst things I've seen in a game. Like, something I didn't expect at all. And the raw emotion from Ellie is just too much. When I first played this game, I was screaming for Abby's blood alongside Ellie. I too wanted revenge. It's not fun. Abby and her band of insurgents reveal themselves to be aligned with something called the Washington Liberation Front, or WLF. And that was their fatal flaw. After the deed is done, the group leaves and returns to Seattle. Tommy sets out for Seattle, too, determined to avenge his brother. Ellie wants to go, too, and Dina agrees to go with her. No hesitation. Ellie tries to justify leaving by saying she's really tracking Tommy and trying to get him to return to Jackson. But it doesn't end up going that way. Ellie and Dina mow through WLF soldiers, also called wolves, on their way to Seattle. This entire first part of the game takes place over three days, with a large chunk of Abby's friend group killed either by Tommy, Ellie, or Dina, or a new faction of humans called the Seraphites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is just like another religious zealot group. Uh, that are, like, anti-technology. They're kind of interesting, but also they're homophobic. So, anyway, 
There is a cute scene you can find in a music store in the ruins of Seattle where Ellie plays guitar and sings a rendition of Take On Me by AHA. Seems a strange song choice, doesn't it? For those of you who've only ever seen the show, you might remember the HBO trailer that featured that song playing in the background, and a lot of people were like, what a weird song choice. Is it? The lyrics are, take me on, take on me, I'll be gone in a day or two. This is day one of three in Seattle, so it seems fitting. I love their rendition of Take On Me. And a quick shout out to one of my all-time favorite TV shows, The Magician, where, by the way, Yanni was a guest star on on an episode, so correlation, it all ties together. But they also do a slowed down and sorrowful version of this song to commemorate a death of a character. And I cry so hard. And also a shout out to a West Coaster who sang this at 80s night karaoke. Fun times. Very fun times. That sounds like fun times. <laughs> so, back in Seattle, the pair continued tracking Abby and her wolves. Rip Shimmer, the most beautiful chestnut mare, by the way. I will never get over that either. And eventually, Dina and Ellie are forced to flee some infected... And Ellie's gas mask breaks, and Dina sees her breathing spores, thinking she's about to die. She's horrified, and the two hunker down in an old theater. And uh, that the whole point of their escapade was to find out where one of Abby's friends, Nora, was holed up at. But unfortunately, Dina is in no shape to continue right now. You want to tell me what's going on with you? What's going on with me? Ellie, I just saw you breathe spores. I told you. I'm immune. Okay, you're immune? Come on. I was bitten a long time ago. What the fuck are you talking about? I was bitten and nothing happened. The chemical burn. Maria and Tommy and Joel are the only ones who know. Knew. Now you know. I can't get you infected if that's what you're worried about. Make you immune either. Can you say something? Really? I think I'm pregnant. What? Don't worry, it's not yours. <laughs> what are we? What are we supposed to do now? Nothing. I just need to rest for a second. Are you fucking kidding me? How long have you known? <sighs> it was late a few weeks ago. A few weeks? We could have... We could have still turned back. I didn't know. I wasn't sure, okay? I didn't want to be a burden. Well, you're a burden now, aren't you? 
make sure this place is secured. You just rest. Oh, what a way to start a relationship. Pregnant with your ex's baby. Damn. Jesse turns up later, too, and quickly learns that Dina is pregnant with his baby. Dina becomes mission control after this, as she is too sick to travel. And as someone who has been through the first trimester, I'm not going anywhere on foot either. She repairs a radio and keeps tabs on the movements of the wolves in the area. And the next day, Ellie tracks Nora down at Lake Hill Seattle Hospital. She fights her way through the hospital and tortures her to reveal that Abby is hiding out at the aquarium. She had forced her to breathe spores and then beats her. This is a rough scene. We are forced to press buttons to deliver blows to Nora, but we don't actually see them land. We hear grunts of pain and the wet sounds of blood splatter. And then it cuts to Ellie's bloody hand, shaking from horror and adrenaline. It's clear that her rampage through the city is catching up to her, not just physically, but emotionally as well. And that's exactly what she's on, a rampage of revenge. Up until now, Ellie hasn't seemed to even feel pain, and she has shown absolutely no remorse for any of the deaths she's inflicted on myriad WLF people, anybody in her way. Almost all of them were strangers to her, not associated with Abby, other than perhaps also being in the WLF. The next day, the third day, Jesse convinces Ellie that they need to get Tommy and get out of Seattle because Dina has only grown more sick. Ellie agrees, but... During their search for Tommy, she splits and goes to the aquarium, looking for Abby. This Ellie, this 19-year-old, who was once comedic relief and could have been the savior of humanity, has now become the hero antagonist, or anti-hero. Part 1 was a story about love, but Part 2 is a story about hate. Hate has fueled Ellie but there are flickers of guilt, shimmers of regret, when Ellie is horrified by her actions in the name of love. Just as Joel killed the fireflies and took Ellie out of the hospital in the name of love, Ellie is now seeking to destroy Abby and everything she loves in the name of her love for Joel. People have criticized this game for all sorts of things. Namely, they hate Abby because she killed Joel. And because Joel died to begin with. But who is who here, though? This game is about two people in very different places on the same path. Abby's last five years have been her journey to avenge her father and kill Joel. She completes that journey in the beginning, which is what sets Ellie on her path. Abby's journey in the rest of the game is one of rediscovering her humanity, just as Ellie moves further and further away from hers. This isn't a passive thing that Ellie doesn't notice happening to her either. She feels it pulled away from her with every memory 
of every strike, every arrow, every knife sliding into another person in her hunt for Abby. Actions always have consequences, and Abby is slowly being cornered. If you played the game, you'll have noticed, probably, that the loading screens in Ellie's tattoo feature a moth. Like a moth drawn to a flame, Ellie is drawn towards Abby and her thirst for revenge. It's something she can't seem to stop herself from doing, even as those around her suffer and die for her cause. The game will show us flashbacks of Joel and Ellie drifting further apart, leaving us wondering why Ellie is so consumed with avenging him if she was so angry at him. It makes no sense. It seems to make no sense anyway. Ellie reaches the aquarium on day three. It's interesting because day one was clear skies, peaceful, open. But by day three, dark clouds and rain are ever-present. The entire environment narrows. What was once open roads and trees is now cluttered and destroyed buildings, crumbling ruins. And while Ellie doesn't find Abby at the aquarium, she finds Abby's two friends. Ellie kills them and is horrified to realize that Abby's friend Mel was pregnant, like visibly pregnant, but you don't see that when you shiv someone from behind. I remember the horror I felt was mirrored in Ellie's face. She's literally slowly destroying herself. Tommy and Jesse find her and take her back to the theater. But unfortunately, Ellie drops her map, which shows where they are camped at in the theater. And Abby finds it. That night, the third night, Abby attacks them, killing Jesse and taking Tommy hostage. And then our point of view and player character shift, and we are hurtled back through time and into a young Abby's body. We are jerked from a moment of panic and anger at Abby, yet again killing one of ours, to suddenly being Abby, playing through those three days as Abby. And we are back at the story of part one, the story of redemption. Abby fights to protect Lev, a young boy pursued by the Seraphites. We see her find herself again, and the girl she was before Joel took her dad away. Until day three, where she discovers her friend's bodies in the aquarium. Then the poison floods her mind again, and we are once again in the violent cycle of revenge. Abby and Ellie fight. And you're forced to play as Abby and fight Ellie, which at this point, you're still like, no, Ellie's good and Abby's evil. It's broken down that starkly in your mind as a player at first. Abby beats Dina, almost cuts her throat. Lev speaks up, telling her to stop. And it's that connection of love that pulls Abby out of this moment. Dina and Ellie lay broken on the floor given a second chance, a third chance even, at dropping the vendetta, at walking away from the desire for revenge and walking towards empathy, hope, and redemption, 
somebody's going to have to just lay it down. Otherwise, the cycle of vengeance will always continue. Ellie tries for a while. Dina and Ellie make a life for themselves on a farmhouse outside of Jackson, just like Dina said she wanted to do on day one in Seattle. Dina has the baby, named JJ, and the two seem to have a peaceful life on the farm. Well, three, I guess, with the baby. There is a song written for Ellie, actually. You can find the lyrics in-game. It's called The Guardian by Sean James. It's on Spotify if you guys want to listen to it. It's really good. The song opens saying, When does it get quiet? Time was supposed to extinguish the desire, but the embers won't snuff out. As Ellie wanders the farm, she suffers PTSD flashbacks of Joel's death and her subsequent hunt for Abby. All is not paradise on the farm. And Tommy comes and stirs the pot by saying that he tracked down Abby down to Santa Barbara. She's apparently trying to join up with a band of fireflies there. And just like that, Ellie is back on the path of revenge. She can't let it go. She prepares to leave in the middle of the night to go to Santa Barbara. We've spent a long time talking about the events of the game and the relationship between Abby and Ellie. But what about Ellie and Dina? Well, it's impossible to talk about them without talking about the rest. Part of the character arc, or character downfall arc, that Ellie is on in this game revolves around risking her relationship with Dina. And even Dina's life to try and do something about the pain she feels from the loss of Joel, essentially her father, and the only person she has ever truly loved before this. The only person who never left her. He's fine. Go back to bed. We'll talk about it in the morning, okay? I have to finish it. You don't owe Tommy anything. I don't sleep. I don't eat. I'm... I'm not like you, Dina. What? You think this is easy? For you and for him, I deal with it. I love you. Prove it. Stay. I can't. So what? I'm just supposed to, to sit here and wait for you? For God knows how long, just thinking you're fucking dead the entire time? I don't plan on dying. Yeah, well, neither did Jesse. Or Joel. Hey, stop. Hey. Hey. Come on. We've got a family. She doesn't get to be more important than that. No. Reminds me a lot of Nate and Elena when when she's talking about how like don't go back into it, stay out of it, prove that you love me more than you love the hunt, the chase, the adventure. 
And for this, Dina saying, prove to me that you love me more than you love revenge. And yet Ellie still walks away. Because to Ellie, she hears, do you love me or do you love Joel? Like, that's how she interprets it. Even though this, this is not love. <laughs> this is not love. It's not honoring Joel's memory. It's not doing anything. Where do the scales fall? It's never going to be balanced. Someone will just have to live with the fact that justice is not equal. It's not taking a life for a life. It's not biblical justice. And if you want that, you're going to do this, which is destroy the life you have. If you were hoping for a happy ending for Dina and Ellie, at least at this point, this isn't your game. Ellie lets Abby and her desire for revenge for Joel become more important than Dina and JJ in the life that they have built. The life they have carved out with blood, so much blood, sweat and tears. A typical plot we play as gamers, watch in movies and read in books, is something called the hero's journey. Feel free to Google that if you want to see a helpful diagram. But roughly halfway through the story... The hero is supposed to go through a death and rebirth. We saw that happen with Abby as she killed Joel and realized that her revenge did not bring her the satisfaction that she thought it would, and then how it enabled her to save Lev and devote herself to protecting him. That was her transformation and atonement. But Ellie doesn't have any of this in The Last of Us Part Two. Instead of facing her shadow self and defeating it, she fully embraces it. She has fully shifted from hero to villain, and that's something that we as players really have a hard time of accepting. That's why I think this game got so much hate, because this is not the Ellie that we know from The Last of Us Part 1. This is an Ellie that's five years older and has lived through this world that I hope to God none of us ever have to live through. This switch with Ellie and Abby is one of the most insane things I've ever experienced in a game how I went from hating Abby to loving her, from recognizing and supporting Ellie to being terrified of her. Dina called it all the way back at the beginning. We were terrified of her. Dina told Ellie that she wouldn't go through that again, and she meant it. Ellie does track Abby down, and it's not at all what she expected. Abby and Lev have been captured by a group of awful people called Rattlers, and they were tortured and left strapped to wooden posts on the beach, left to die. Abby is shockingly small from their months of torture and abuse, and poor Lev is unconscious. Ellie frees Abby, demanding that they fight. But Abby first attends to Lev. Just like Joel protecting Ellie, Abby insists on making sure that he is safe and in a boat, ready to escape. Ellie must see the similarities here, but she chooses to ignore them. Her ego demands it. Otherwise, what was the point? She threatens Lev, making Abby fight her. The final boss fight of the game is absolutely brutal. Two injured women just stabbing and 
beating on each other in the saltwater shallows of the beach, the fog clinging to the air of early morning. This scene literally will stay with me for the rest of my life. Like, I'm not even being dramatic. I was just crying and reluctantly pressing buttons on this one. I hated having them fight each other, having to fight Abby. Because at this point, like I said, I, I was on her side now. At this point in the game, I wanted nothing more than for Ellie to just have given it up. Abby bites off two of Ellie's fingers on her left hand, and eventually Ellie has Abby's head underwater. Abby is drowning. This is Ellie's moral event horizon. Or the moment that, once she crosses that threshold, there is no redeeming her. She'll be evil through and through, with no chance at redemption. But the memory of Joel pulls her out of it, just like Lev's voice pulled Abby out of it back in the theater. She doesn't kill Abby. When she's sitting in the water alone, as Abby and Lev escape on a boat, with just nothing around her, it's so empty, and that must be how she feels. She returns to her farm, and Abby and Lev go to Catalina Island, where there is allegedly a group of fireflies. The end of their story in this game is one of hope. When the end credits happened and you go back to the main menu and you see their little boat tied to a dock off Catalina Island, I literally was so happy to see that they made it there. But the end of Ellie's story? Well, when she makes it back to the farm, she finds it empty, save for one room that's filled with her things. She picks up her guitar, the one Joel gave her with a moth on the neck. She tries to play, but the sound is off because of her missing fingers. Her last connection to him is forever tainted by her mark of shame, a reminder of her failed revenge. A discord and guitar strings just... Oh, God. That hurt. One moral of the story is that narrow focus love doesn't just destroy others, but it destroys you too. Dina and Ellie were opposites in many ways. Where Dina was extroverted and confident, Ellie was awkward and timid about showing affection publicly. Dina was all warm tones. She normally wore oranges and reds, and her skin is a warm brown. Ellie was all cool tones, usually in blues and greens, and with a cool-toned pale skin. Dina believes in God, and Ellie is firmly agnostic. And as the game progresses, Dina is kind and loving in a way that Ellie no longer is. Dina is now the representation of hope for humanity, not Ellie. Ellie once was, but now it seems that all hope for her being a cure for the fungus is gone. And all of Ellie's hope for finding a purpose for her life seems to be gone too. Dina literally gave birth to the next generation, set up a farm, and is working at a peaceful life, normal life, despite the challenges despite her girlfriend 
all in the end. Yeah, it's it's crazy because Ellie was like the messiah figure in the first game, and now she is the bringer of death, to quote her song, The Guardian, again. But for this, for Dina leaving, I highly respect Dina for that. I can't imagine having a toddler in that world on my own and just just holding fast to my boundaries and refusing to be sucked into another crazy rampage. Ellie sacrificed the love she has for Dina, someone alive and here now, for the love she carries for Joel. But she's tarnished that love with hate, and she only now just seems to realize the huge ramifications. I can only hope that they do make a part three, because Ellie's journey could not be over, not here. Now that she has let go of her need for revenge, she can truly heal. Maybe she can even be with Dina again. Dina deserved so much better than the Ellie we get in part two. Maybe the Ellie in part three will be able to earn her trust back. Dina deserves someone who will prioritize her, think of her and JJ's needs, and will ultimately just stay with her. Ellie's greatest fear was to end up alone, and she brought it on herself. The biggest tragedy for me is realizing that after years of tension, Ellie and Joel were finally coming back together. We get one more flashback at the very end of the game. You're such an asshole. I'm not trying to. I was supposed to die in that hospital. My life would have fucking mattered. But you took that from me. Somehow the Lord gave me a second chance at that moment. I would do it all over again. Yeah. I just... I don't think I can ever forgive you for that. But I would like to try... that lovely lovely note of complete sadness i don't think i've ever felt this sad during one of our episodes either but this is where we would normally end it tonight we have a special guest one in which listeners of the show will know because he has been with us since the beginning and that is pf apollo yes day one patron day one follower day one supporter and day mm-hmm. one, when are you going to do The Last of Us? <laughs> exactly. Well, the day is finally here. 
All right. For people who live under a rock and listen to our show, would you mind introducing yourself? I'm Apollo from the Discord from their chat. That's me. And why, Apollo, are you the one we asked to come on this episode? Tell us about your Last of Us story. Well, my Last of Us story starts with hating it. I, my girlfriend's sister got it for me in Christmas at either 14 or 15, and I started playing it, and I just rage quit it because I got to a part that I could not get past. I was like, why does this game have to be so difficult? I turned it off, put it back in the thing, went to GameStop and traded it in because I was so mad that I couldn't get past this part. But then finally, when they put it as a free game on the PlayStation Network in during COVID, basically, or right before Last of Us 2 came out, I downloaded it, tried it again, and then got to the part that I couldn't beat to begin with, couldn't beat it again, and was like, well, what happens if I just try to run? So I just, and it's the part where you're in the sewers trying to get away from all the the soldiers and I ran and got through it. And I was like, really this, I rage quit because I couldn't kill everything. Cause that's what I've always, I'm used to doing. And all I had to do was run. So I got past that and then I played it. I loved it. I was got last of us two immediately played that immediately and was floored. So and finished last of us two and just started it over immediately again. And, I think I've put in close to 400 hours in the two games since then, which is yeah. a lot for games that don't change. <laughs> that are linear, have no choices. In fact, that's a recurring theme in these games is how little choice you actually have. Because someone's that's something unique about this whole situation, especially in The Last of Us Part Two, when you're forced to play as a character or do something a character you think might not do, like beating Nora as Ellie or playing as Abby, your choice as a player is taken away a lot. And yet, you know, I mean, Masters Part 2 is pretty contentious. I think people who don't like it are strange and I will never understand them. It is so good. But you and me seem to be kind of a minority liking the game more than the first one. Well, see, in that first playthrough, I was beating Nora that first in the first playthrough. I was like, absolutely. I need to get what I want. And then they switched it on me. And by the end of that game, I was... And then playing it through a second time, I'm like, I don't want to do, I don't want to kill these people now. Maybe there's another way. Can I, what if I don't? Like there's, I don't want to kill these people. They're actually decent human beings in this world. Yeah, and the dog. <laughs> didn't even talk about the dog. Um, yeah, killing Alice, that just, that's the worst. After the first playthrough, no problem. Right? This dog is attacking me. Mm -hmm. I want to get past it. After, now I'm like, I don't. Can I find a different way in? I don't want to kill Alice. So, agreed. I mean, I never want to kill a dog, but especially not Alice after after you get to play fetch with her. That's the thing that I love so much about the second one is, in the, you know, the first one's amazing for many reasons, but like the second one does such a good job at showing humanity from all sides. And you've mentioned it before on our show where you said, that point of view matters. Like it's just who you're playing as you're just aligned with automatically because that's who you're told the side of, but like, look how easily our alliances might shift depending on who we're playing as or whose experiences we get to see. And then this character that we've known, we're suddenly like, mm, actually you're wrong. I don't agree with you anymore. You know? 
Yeah, it's right. If they do, it's a master. Naughty Dog did exactly what they meant to do with that second game. I think if and again, not every. I'm not saying everybody has to like it. If you don't like it, you don't like it. But I get it. Like I absolutely get what they were trying to do, and it's it's masterful. And yeah, it's it's so good. I, okay, so I guess I should ask you a question instead of just gushing about how much we like this game. <laughs> so we've we talked a lot about Last of Us Part One and Part Two. Did you? I'm sure you didn't learn or hear anything new, but did you? I did not. I put enough time in these games that it would be pretty. You would have to. I don't. It would be pretty hard for you to find something that I haven't seen. Maybe something I haven't thought of, but definitely not something I haven't seen. That's true. So as far as romance goes, did you think we missed anything or things that you think would have brought more depth to them? Um, I think the one thing that some people I've heard complain about was like, why would Dina go with Ellie so quickly when they just got together? And then the, the next day, she's basically ready to go cross country with her. But I think that's ignoring the fact that they've known each other for five years. Like, I think Ellie and Dina are the kind of relationship that even in this world would last where you've known each other for a while, you're friends, you've already, you already know that you already know so much about each other. And that romance kind of comes at the end. Like, Mm -hmm. I think, I I think that, I mean, that's literally how my girlfriend and I got together. We knew each other for five years before we got together. So like I can relate to, yeah. Okay. Yeah. They just kissed for the first time. And then the next day Dina's ready to go. But I mean, that kiss was almost like a formality. They've almost been, They've been right there for God knows how many years, and they just finally took that final step. Yeah, because that's something, I guess, if you you need to read the journals, like in Ellie's room, and then listen to the passive conversations they have when you're riding the horses on your patrol, where they're talking about Ellie's ex-girlfriend, Kat, who we never see, but like it's implied that Dina has kind of had a crush on Ellie for a really long time. And, but Ellie was with Kat and Kat didn't really like Ellie and Dina hanging out because she probably sensed that there was something more that could be there. And then because she just broke up with Jesse and Ellie and Kat are no longer together, Dina's like, hey, we're both single, ready to mingle, you know? I feel like the Dina and Jesse breakup might have been because Ellie was finally available. So Dina's like, okay, Jesse, sorry, but this this is my girl. Mm -hmm. that's what's so tragic to me about the whole thing is like ellie is dina's person and if ellie would just stop and realize that like this is the whole tragedy of like letting your ego get in the way of your life this is a very extreme example but we all could learn from that you know we all do that to our loved ones on occasion some more than others not usually as bad as ellie does but I think also Ellie's also such just a well-written character in that she repeats these cycles of what her whole life has been. I mean, Ellie's whole life has been abandonment. Her mom at birth, granted, that's not her mom's fault. Her mom didn't want to abandon her, but she still did. We don't know. We know that Ellie's lost people throughout the rest of her life. We don't get a whole backstory, but there's no question she's seen people she knew died. She never, like, she finally gets that... 30 seconds of happiness with Riley where they're totally honest with each other and they have a kiss and then all hell breaks loose and Riley abandons her by dying again, not her choice. Joel, same thing. She hardly gets a moment of happiness with Joel. She's truly happy as Joel's daughter for 
five minutes at the giraffe scene, really, in part one. And then they get to the Firefly Hospital. And from then on, their relationship is built on a lie. When she asked Joel, is that what really happened? And he says, yes, that's what happened. And she just says, okay, which is her, I don't think she believed him. She just, no. she believed what she wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. And then finally, finally, when she's happy with somebody, she does the exact same thing. And it's even worse because Dina literally begs her not to go. We know Ellie's got PTSD because you can read it in her journals where she talks about, I want to talk about my feelings. I want to talk about what happened, but I feel like if I talk, I'll never be able to stop. She's afraid. Dina even tries, maybe not in the best way, where she's like, look, we all go through shit, but we deal with it. You don't. Dina, I think Dina wants her to talk about it, but Ellie just doesn't know how. And it causes her to do the same thing. She now is the one abandoning somebody who's literally begging her, saying, I love you, please don't go. And she just does it because it's what she knows. She's never she's never seen anybody not abandon the person they love. And I don't I think she didn't know how. I think it's also like this world has taught her that being open and vulnerable is literally the most dangerous thing you can do because the second she did it with Riley, Riley died. Like they got attacked, you know, and then Joel, they were never really open and vulnerable up until the end. That last clip we played where she was like, I don't think I can forgive you, but I want to try. Like that was when their relationship could really start for real because in the last of us part one, we're building to that, but the story is more about Joel redeeming himself and remembering what it's like to be a good person because Joel was not a good person before we knew him in the first game. He was a smuggler. He routinely hurt people to help himself. That was who he is. Ellie helped him remember his humanity. And then when it came time at the end of the game to choose between letting that go and potentially saving humanity for everyone else, he chose no. That was a choice that was predestined for him because we already saw that he was that type of person well before this outbreak really took place, like where he's driving on the road and with his daughter, Sarah, and his brother, Tommy, and they don't stop for that family right in the beginning, the day one, like we already knew. And and I'm not going to judge him for that either, because I have a kid. I would 1000% make that same choice that he did in the hospital. I would save Ellie too, um, mainly just on principle, because nobody freaking asked Ellie what she wanted to do. No one told her what she was going to be needing to do to get a vaccine potentially from her immunity. And I feel like this whole thing, just y'all need to ask consent. Like that's, that's like one of the main takeaways from this freaking game. Consent is key. Consent is freaking key. And I understand why she was so mad at him because she has gone her whole life. Like what the hell is the point? And then she is special. And then now it's for nothing because of what he did. Like, who knows who's at Catalina Island? We can safely assume there's probably not another neurosurgeon like Dr. What was his last name? Anderson. Um, Abby's dad. You know, like he was a special doctor. And there aren't many of those around left. So uh, I don't know what's going to happen with part three. But in any case, 
while I understand why Joel made his choice, I feel like people who try to defend it are wrong. Like you can say I would have done that too and also say it was a bad choice. Like that was a wrong thing to do to just kill all these people. Well, and then it's also that just- about point of view though, because you go, exactly. you the whole point, they were, ta- he was taking Ellie across the country so the fireflies could save the world. But yeah. in going across the country, I mean, Joel, before that game, he's a dead man walking. We know yeah. he's, we, it's implied that he had tried to kill himself and didn't succeed. I mean, he's just dead. Honestly, I think Joel, puts himself in situations hoping to get killed, but he's so good at what he does. He he can't just he can't just let it happen, but he's such a good fighter. He doesn't he always wins. But he found his world crossing this country. So he did save the world at the end of that game. It's just that he saved his world, not everybody else's world. And that's what Troy yeah. Baker essentially said in an interview after the TV show came out, that it was about he did save a world. It just wasn't the world he set out to save. It was yeah. the world he found. Like, who's going to be that altruistic and be like, mm, yes, I will kill the one person in the world that means the most to me for the rest of you strangers who he has seen the worst of humanity. Like, this world is extreme, but the humans are the same and their reactions are extreme because the world is extreme. But those factors and those tendencies reside in all of us as a species and as individuals, there is no way that if that world was not the world we live in, that people would not be acting like that. Like the things to most fear in The Last of Us are always other people, not the infected. Like the infected just do their thing. Obviously, they're a danger. But like, who's the most dangerous? The people who betray you, the other factions, like it's always just this crazy bullshit with people. And I think that's another thing that Joel sees is like, we're never going to change because he is a person who has seen the world before the cordyceps took over. He knows like people have not changed. Why are we saving them? Like Ellie is this bright, beautiful light of humanity just for me. And like, it's fine that she's alive. She can't die to save all these people. I get that. I really do. And then at the same time, I also 1000% get why Abby killed him. Like I would have wanted to do that too. If I were her, like that's what sucks is, it's another amazing revelation, I think, in these games when you when you realize, shit, I didn't even think about what my actions as Joel would have done like to other people. Like I didn't even consider that anyone in that hospital was gonna mourn the loss of anybody that I killed. Like until the last and then you get consequences, which is just something you don't get in games normally from the people you kill. They're just mindless NPCs normally. Not here. Not here. And I know it's worth a romance podcast, but it's like all that's what's so great about this story is it all interplays so well. Like we cannot talk about Dina and Ellie without talking about everything else because their whole relationship hinges on the entire plot line of The Last of Us Part Two. I think we've definitely broadened a little bit more beyond just, you know, romance because we we talk about relationships and all the different types of bonds that happen, you know there's we t- the father-daughter relationship between Ellie. We've talked about, you know, a whole bunch of different types of relationships. We had an episode on bromances, you know, like two male best buds. Probably need to do a flip side of that too and get like a good sister-mance going on. Like, who is your bestie? But so, and I totally agree that if we had 
only talked about the romance and relationship parts of any of these romances, the episode would have been like 20 minutes long. And it's just because there's so much that goes into it that makes those moments more impactful. You guys didn't even talk about what how revenge in this in this game just destroys other relationships because we have I mean we have Owen and Abby who were a couple and apparently a pretty decent couple until her thirst for vengeance destroyed them and then so Owen then gets with Mel gets her pregnant and Ellie's desire for vengeance destroys that when he kills both of them like everybody's relationships in these games get destroyed by vengeance like you said like we said Ellie's literal worst fear is to be alone and she wasn't alone she had a good life but her her desire for vengeance is what caused her to be alone and it's like she honest she can blame p i think we can blame ptsd i don't think ellie is in her right mind at all until the end of the game but she doesn't really have anybody to blame but herself for where she's at at the end of the game because she had the chance to stop even when tommy came back and guilted her she could have said no it's over i have a life i can't do this but she made the choice agreed if you guys haven't heard that song that i kept referencing i love finding like appropriate poems or song lyrics for characters that we cover but like I've never had a character that literally had a song written for them before, so it makes it really easy. But like, there's this other moment in this song that is the perfect summation of Ellie's whole deal in the second game. And she learned the extremely hard way that it really was not going to help her to get vengeance. But it's, justice and mercy don't live side by side, so in retribution I abide. I'll tip the scales to justice's end, but can it make amends? Jesus Christ. You know, like, no, it can't. And like, you see that in the very, very beginning of the game, the second Joel dies and Abby's face, the rest of her friends behind her are like celebrating like, yeah, we got him because they have been with her on this journey partly. But her face, she has no idea how to feel and she doesn't look any close to happy or content or better. In fact, she looks worse like she realizes that it was a mistake exactly she realized it was a mistake she you see in her face right there she's like what have i done what have i done what this is what this is the past four or five years has led to this what have i done i haven't made myself feel better i haven't made my friends better i've destroyed relationships like what the hell did i just do like she snapped out of it and i mean that was tough yeah the whole thing sucks because it's like Dina and Ellie are very compatible. Like they're a really great couple. If Ellie would just stop and like, I'm glad that's, that's why I hope we have a third game because I, I do still hope for a chance at them to get back together. I think that chance exists because Dina is such a wonderful bright light and full of forgiveness and hope that I think if she sees that Ellie truly has realized that it didn't bring Joel back. It was all for nothing in the end because she didn't even kill Abby, which I'm glad she didn't. Because like I said, that would have been a step too far into the darkness for Ellie. So I really hope that they do end up back together because I love it. I love it for many reasons. Um, Some of the minor ones include they are an interracial lesbian couple. Like 
that's great to see, period. But also, like, they are a good couple together. Very compatible. They made it, like, how hard is it in this world to set up a farm outside of a settlement and have a baby? And, like, their life was pretty much normal. Their life was good. Better than a lot of people's in that world. Out of all the scenes that I watched, though, I do have to say that that is my one criticism about the whole thing. And it's literally just because it's a a video game. How old is this child? How old is JJ? Maybe a a year old. Maybe a year. Okay. Because that baby is about half the height of Ellie. I know. It it, it is a baby. It is a big ass baby. But then they use her vagina. Oh god, poor thing. Um, but then they use the audio track of like a two month old crying. Like as a mama, I know the sound of a newborn crying. I know the sound of like a a baby crying, and then a toddler crying. They are very Mm -hmm. very distinct and different. That is like a two month old cry. And a one-year-old baby in a three-year-old's body. Please? A tall-ass three-year-old. Jesse was 6'6 six, six or something. I don't know. For the love of God, game devs or people who are designing video games, if you are going to put a baby in your game, ask somebody Please. who has baby that knows what baby looks like. It is not. You cannot shrink down the model of a normal-sized adult and make that your baby either, because that doesn't work. That is my one complaint. I feel like she. I feel like Ellie comments about how big JJ is, or am I misremembering? I don't know. Uh, she calls I, I feel like they say something. A squat little ball of muscle, something like that. So That's I mean, right. yes, That's they right. do right. make a comment about how it's a muscular baby, but still, <laughs> like, like who the fuck has a muscular baby? Abby would. If she had a kid. That's not Happy's baby. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we should. My goal eventually is to do an episode on like Joel and Ellie's relationship or something because I I love it so much and I love romance, but I also I just love relationships. So I want to do it. They do it so well. I actually think in that moment where where Abby kills Joel, she probably realizes that she lost Owen. Because Owen, I didn't like Owen the first time I played through. Like, I hated mm-hmm. him. But now, like, I love Owen. Like, I think Owen's one of the great characters in the game. Because he's he is an action. Everybody in that game kills people. They're at war. Everybody kills people. But Owen is the one who literally says, puts down his weapon and says, I'm not doing this anymore. Literally. It's what gets him on Isaac's bad side that he literally says, I'm not fighting anymore. I'm done. He literally says, I'm done fighting over land that I don't give a fuck about. Let's choose to be happy. I mean, he says that. He tells Abby, we can choose to be happy. And I think Abby lost that when she killed Joel. Like she realized she had something and she lost it because she was hell bent on killing this one person. She had happiness and she gave it up for Mm -hmm. this. That's what I'm saying. Abby and Ellie are two sides of the same coin. Abby, we get to see her next steps and where she gets to grow and her realization that, oh shit, this wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And Owen is her Dina. Like, they're both strangely positive people in this horrible, dark world. Instead of being a moth to the flame of revenge, maybe they should flit toward the little warmth of the people who love them and 
call it a day. That wouldn't make a very interesting game, I guess. But, you know, we'll see what part three takes us. It's like I said before, they, I, my only thing that I would have changed in part two is the little line I, I, that I've told you before. Like, as Joel was dying, if he would have just looked at Ellie and said, it's okay, baby girl, just to, like, reference, reference her being his daughter to him and him yeah. saying, let it go, because I know what vengeance does to people. Like, try, him trying to say, let it go, and then not obviously not succeeding. Like, that would have hit so much harder i would have become dehydrated from the amount of tears i would have shed if that had happened it was already like a horrific scene to watch but on that note do you have any last thoughts i just can't wait for them to make part three there's no way they're not going to make a part three especially after doing the tv show there's no way i think he's going to be tight-lipped about it like i don't think he's gonna let happen what happened with part two or spoilers got out and people uh, i think he'll be tight-lipped but there's no way he's not going to make a part three there's no way i think he will and my favorite thing also about him is his reaction to all the hate the second game got he was just like don't care gonna do what i want to do love that so much keep doing it it's amazing we love it the people who know what a good story is we appreciate it the, the bad part of the hate was what Laura Bailey got. Like, she didn't deserve that. She's playing a character of people. She's not really Abby. Laura Bailey did not kill Ellie. You know, did it is not, not kill Joel. It is not Laura Bailey's first round in the ring of unfair criticism, let me tell you. that She is an amazing actress, and they need to leave her alone. I feel like that is a tangent we could go down for quite another long time. But I think it's time to wrap it up for here for the night. Is there anything that you want to shout out or plug, Apollo? Not yet. Whenever the next season of Last of Us comes on TV, I'm going to do a Last of Us podcast, but who knows? That's probably going to be 2024. All right. Well, I'm pretty sure that V will be your co-host for that if you want her. <laughs> she has already asked me, and I'm like, I swear, I need I need more time in a day. I would... We'll see after my husband. Well, gets this won't, mine won't be scripted. It won't That's be as fair. I don't, if it's not. You won't have to be writing scripts. We'll we'll see what my life looks like in a year. Ah, uh, okay. Now, if you like what you're hearing, please be sure to leave a rating and a review on iTunes or on that Spotify feature and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can now find me on the Cyberpunk Lorecast with my co-host, Toasty, where we explore the foundations of the past, the state of Night City today, and the news of the future for all things cyberpunk, including the Phantom Liberty DLC expansion coming out in September. So excited. And you can also find me in the Two Girls, One Ship channel on the Robots Radio Discord. Come give us a follow on all the social medias and on patreon.com slash twogirlsoneship. Links to those are in the link tree in our description. I'm on the Robots Radio Discord as well. And on our own Two Girls, One Ship Discord server where we nerd out on all our favorite CGI significant others. Be sure to check out our live streams on Twitch on Fridays at 10.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 7.30 p.m. Pacific Time. Our podcast episodes release on Mondays because you need at least one good thing on a Monday. So thanks for listening. And remember that beauty is in the eye of the controller.
Ever wanted to be a content creator but had no clue where to begin? Come join me as I sit down with content creators that have already faced the challenges you're up against as they discuss the tips and tricks that help them be successful. Here on The Content Creator's Guide, available wherever podcasts can be found.